Hello and welcome to the latest Funds Fan Podcast. I'm Kyle Caldwell, your host and the Collectives Editor at Interactive Investor. Coming up later on in the podcast is an interview with a fund that has a yield of over 5%. And that fund is the M&G Emerging Markets Bond Fund, which is a member of Interactive Investor's Super 60 list of rated investments. But firstly, joining me for the first part of the podcast to discuss a couple of news stories related to funds and investment trusts is Interactive Investor's Head of Markets, Richard Hunter. Richard, thank you for joining me again. Absolute pleasure, Carl. So Richard, we're going to start off with the market rotation that's been playing out since the start of this year. Could you firstly explain what's been going on? Well, we've known that inflation has been building up for some time. Um, Historically, that's going to um, result in higher interest rates. So probably right at the end of 2021, we began seeing this rotation out of what you might call growth stocks, especially big tech, uh, which is uh, the, the actual best example of growth stocks, into value stocks. And some of that's on a, on a valuation basis. Obviously, um, the punch bowl had been there for a number of years in terms of QE and general easy monetary policy. But any thoughts that uh, that might start to tighten um, has an impact on future profits, whether that's through higher costs, whether it's through wage inflation, or, or whether it begins to put a big question mark over valuation. So generally speaking, investors thought it was probably time um, to take some of the profits they'd made in tech stocks, although remain invested for the most part, but also also to look again uh, at what value there was to be had uh, in terms of the overlooked value part of the market. So just to take a step back, I thought it might be helpful to explain the differences between growth and value strategies. So generally speaking, a fund manager that invests in growth companies, they're looking for businesses that have the potential to grow faster than the market. Uh, Growth fund managers typically have a checklist of attributes that they look for in a business. Some of these items may be, you know, strong pricing power, the possession of intellectual property and evidence of recurring revenues from repeat sales. A value fund manager, they're also hoping to identify businesses that have the potential to grow faster than the market, but they are much more valuation driven. They hunt for bargains, seeking to identify cheap shares that the fund manager believes have for some reason been unjustly mispriced by the market. Value fund managers, they look for a potential catalyst that may revive the share price, such as a restructuring of the business or the appointment of a new management team. And value shares, they tend to be more economically sensitive. So when the economy is performing well, this is a tailwind and vice versa. Some fund management companies favor one of these two investment styles over the other. And in the case of Bailey Gifford, its fund and investment trust range invest in high growth shares. And in recent years, its funds and investment trusts have benefited from growth shares being in high demand among investors. But this tailwind has lately turned into a headwind. In 2021, Bailey Gifford was the most successful active fund manager in attracting investors to its fund range for the second year running. Although the PRISM report, which ranks the popularity of fund management companies among investors, did note that investment flows slowed into Bailey Gifford's fund range as the year progressed, as some investors decided to switch to value investing. Richard, as you mentioned, We've, of course, been here before, 
there was a similar market rotation that played out for a couple of months from November 2020 when the vaccine breakthroughs were made. That rotation fizzled out from around May onwards. This time round, what do you think, Richard? Will this market rotation be sustained for longer? I think there's every possibility of that, Kyle. Um, In terms of what's happening this time around, I mean, obviously, when we had the breakthrough in terms of the vaccines that you mentioned, there was a fairly broad markup uh, and a collective sigh of relief from an investment perspective. This time, it's potentially a little bit more specific. We've uh, already mentioned high inflation, which is normally curbed partially by rising interest rates, uh, and that obviously has uh, an impact on future profits. And the inflation question, although the Federal Reserve and indeed other central banks initially thought that uh, inflation would be transitory, um, clearly in the early parts of 2022, um, it's getting worse and it will probably get a little bit worse yet before the comparatives start coming through and things ease a bit. So I think the blocks are in place uh, for this particular rotation to continue. That being said, of course, there are still a number of highly valuable cash generative big tech companies in the States. Uh, So uh, avoid those particular companies at your peril. But in terms of a general investment trend, I think this particular rotation may have more legs. Geopolitical tensions between Russia and Ukraine are also keeping markets and investors on their toes. This is all theoretical, of course, at the time of this recording. But if there is an invasion, do you think there would be a major market sell-off? It's certainly worthwhile just recapping the last couple of weeks. And on an almost daily basis, as the news flow has uh, got to us, we've seen um, investors running for the hill and moving into havens, haven investment. And uh, more latterly, with the possibility of some kind of diplomatic solution, uh, we've got the risk on approach again. So that gives you an immediate view of how the market would would react uh, to an invasion. Then, of course, it would need to be broken down further um, it, and investors will be looking on the global stage. Clearly, in terms of geographical proximity, there'd probably be more of an impact in Europe. Uh, we've already got the US basically saying that um, any kind of delivery uh, of energy to the states, they're, they're looking to become energy self-sufficient, although that's not a, a flick you can switch overnight. So clearly there's going to be an impact. And by bearing in mind, we've got these two valves of pressure going on at the moment, the geopolitical te- tensions on one hand and inflation on the other hand, an upset to either of those camps uh, is likely to add to what we're already seeing for some, from some fairly skittish investors. And in terms of how markets have performed since the start of the year, uh, the UK market has uh, booked the sort of wider trend. Um, And this is mainly because it's more economically sensitive than other exchanges. It has a lot of value sectors, oil, gas, miners and banks. Um, And those sectors, they comprise a large part of the FTSE 100's market cap. However, fund investors have continued to shy away from the UK market. Over the past year, UK equity funds across the three UK sectors have seen inflows in only three months. And the latest figures from the Investment Association for December show that um, just under 900 million was withdrawn from UK funds. And overall, the UK market has been out of favour with fund investors since the UK voted to leave the European Union in June 2016. Richard, what are your thoughts on the unloved UK market and what do you think the catalyst will be for 
fund investors to start buying UK funds? Well, I think the catalyst uh, is already there, and, and you've you've covered it in in the, what you've just said, Carl. In as much as if you imagine that uh, oil miners and banks do comprise a large part of the FTSE 100, clearly the oil price has been on a tear this year. I, mainly as a result of the ongoing demand supply imbalance, rising interest rate environment, good for banks. And in terms of the miners, obviously, uh, they tend to be uh, something of a hedge against inflation. So commodity prices have also been looking fairly good. It's quite unusual to be talking about some sort of return to favour for the FTSE 100. It has indeed lagged for any number of years and, and been something of an investment pariah. But um, certainly at the time of this recording, we've got a situation whereby in the year to date, the NASDAQ is down over 9% and the FTSE 100 is up by 3%. So I'm not necessarily suggesting that that 12% outperformance will continue, but there is certainly um, a resurgence of interest in the UK market for those cyclical reasons and also for defensive reasons. You've got a number of large um, companies within the FTSE 100 which demonstrate real pricing power. And obviously, that's the ability to pass prices on to customers. Obviously, that's incredibly important in an inflationary environment. So that could range from anything to from Diageo to Unilever, Reckitt Benkiser, um, and there are also others within the index. So currently, as things stand in this slightly skittish environment, uh, the UK all of a sudden seems to have a lot going for it. There has been a resurgence of interest from professional investors who've been up in their stakes. The latest Bank of America survey of global fund managers, which was published this week, noted that a net 4% of global professional investors are now underweight UK equities. And this was down sharply from 13% the previous month. Richard, you recently interviewed Nick Train on your uh, Richard Hunter interview. Now, while... He is talking up the market he invests in. Nick Train did give some good reasons as to why the UK has been unfairly neglected in recent years. Could you run through what they were? Yeah, clearly, I'll, I'll paraphrase what Nick was saying. Um, I don't hope to be as eloquent uh, as he is, but he, he kind of opened up by making the point that if um, over a 20-year period, if you'd invested £1, you'd get something of a return to the order of £3.50 in the UK, but something like £12 if you'd been invested in the tech-heavy NASDAQ stock uh, index. And it's he said that um, that just shows you how much the UK had been left behind. And that's why he sincerely hopes that the UK stock market has been unfairly neglected in recent years, which offers an opportunity today. He said he obviously can't be sure about that, but that's hoping, uh, he's hoping that that is what turns out. Now, He's saying that obviously we haven't got a Tesla or a Google, or maybe we never will have. But what we have got um, is that it's possible to access money making in what he calls mega trends. And it's perfectly reasonable to assume that uh, it, you're able to access those through perfectly credible UK companies that are definitely undervalued today relative to their global peers. And I think the last thing that's probably worth mentioning is that he said that there's an increasing change in the complexion of the UK stock market towards more and more digitally enabled companies. And to him, that's why the central reason, in fact, why you might want to be optimistic about investing in the UK over the next five years or whatever number you want to pick, that the shape of the market is gradually changing 
and it's gradually changing to include more growth businesses. And hopefully the UK can be a part of that. It was a really interesting uh, interview. And if you haven't um, watched or listened to it, then I would uh, encourage uh, listeners of Funds Fan to, uh, to do give it a listen. Richard, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, Carl. For our fund manager interview, I'm joined by Claudia Kalic, fund manager of the M&G Emerging Markets Bond Fund. So Claudia, could you firstly explain in simple terms what an emerging market bond is and how risk and yields compare to bonds that are issued in a developed market, such as the UK or the US? Yeah, so emerging market bonds can be bonds uh, issued by either governments or corporations that uh, either are located or derive most of the revenues from emerging market countries. And normally the market uh, defines emerging markets as countries that are you know, perhaps not as advanced or wealthy as the developed markets. So that would include uh, you know, pretty much most of Latin America, Africa, parts of Asia, as well as uh, Eastern Europe. Um, in terms of risks, um, normally the credit risk of those issuers tends to be a little bit higher than what we see on developed markets. Um, quite a few of them may be rated by the credit agencies uh, below investment grade, for example, so they might be high yield issuers. Um, in some cases, um, you know, the economies are still perhaps, uh, as I mentioned earlier, not as developed, uh, so that may introduce uh, different types of risks, whether it is economic or political uh, and so on. Um, so, you know, what we do is obviously we need to analyze those risks uh, very carefully to ultimately conclude whether we're getting compensated and paid for those. And if we are, then um, we could consider investing in those uh, emerging market issuers. The fund has a yield of over 5%. How do you ensure that this is a yield that is sustainable? Yeah, if you look at the average yield for emerging market bonds, and by that, again, I'm including the governments and corporates, uh, also including local currency bonds, uh, for the last 10 years, it has averaged 5.6%, and that's measured by the benchmark that we use, which is one of the JP Morgan benchmarks. Uh, so within this framework, we're pretty much on average, if anything, slightly below at the moment. Um, but I want to emphasize that actually uh, we're not necessarily managing um, to keep a, or deliver rather a certain amount of a yield, a minimal yield level, we're managing instead for a total return. Uh, of course, the yield is part of the overall return of the fund, uh, but we also are very mindful of the price uh, behavior and the, the price movements of the underlying securities that we invest in. So basically, if we think a situation could deteriorate very quickly or go into a crisis for a company or a country, uh, we don't hesitate to you know, to divest, even if that you know causes us to perhaps uh, you know, the, the yield is uh, reduced. Um, but uh, we are looking basically from uh, a total returns perspective, not only from a yield perspective. Uh, but I think, in, again, in terms of comparing this to what an investor could obtain in alternative markets such as the US or UK, where you're earning basically one and a half to two percent, I mean, still gives you an additional source of income. So I think it's something that, um, you know, it, it, you know it, it could be interesting for a portfolio that is looking for the income, for example. When interest rates rise in the US, this is often thought to be bad news for emerging market bonds. Could you explain why this is viewed as a risk? And is it something that's concerning you at the moment, given that the US's Federal Reserve is expected to raise interest rates a couple of times in 2022 
in an in an attempt to cool inflation? Yeah, so the market has been very sensitive to the inflation globally and including the US, as you mentioned. And uh, and yes, the the market already expects the Fed to finally start um, hiking rates uh, and continue to do so over the course of the year and possibly even beyond. Um, There are some channels of transmission from these rate hikes to emerging markets. So one is uh, this would potentially make borrowing more expensive. So for the uh, borrowers that borrowed in dollar instruments, for example, dollar-denominated bonds, um, they might have to pay a little bit more uh, in the future than what they used to pay. Um, it, this could also contribute to perhaps a stronger dollar. Uh, but I think if you look at the uh, interesting the behavior of the dollar in past um, Fed tightening episodes, like for example, during the taper tantrum in 2013 onwards, um, the bulk of the dollar appreciation actually happened before the Fed started hiking rates. So by the time the Fed actually started to doing so, um, the dollar had already pretty much uh, peaked. So this is what we expect for this year. Um, if you look what happened to emerging market currencies last year, most of them depreciated quite a bit. So um, they are you know, coming from a much better valuation standpoint. Um, so as a result, we don't think that actually the, the dollar is necessarily going to be you know, strengthened this year just because um, quite uh, a large part of this dollar strength has already happened uh, last year in our view. Uh, and the final point is to emphasize also that um, many central banks in emerging markets also have already been hiking rates way in advance of the fan. So if you look what has already transpired last year and it's still ongoing, we see major central banks, you know, the likes of, uh, you know, the Brazil and uh, you know, Mexico and even some of the central banks finally in Eastern Europe, um, they're already hiking quite a bit. So those uh, interest rates are already much higher than what they used to be. So to the extent that the Fed will continue and will start and continue hiking this year, um, some of this buffer in higher yields in emerging market is already with us. So again, that's another reason why we're not so worried uh, about the, um, the impact of the Fed tightening on emerging market assets. So going back to the fund, it invests in both government bonds and corporate bonds, which is debt issued by companies. What's the percentage split at the moment? So we're invested in about uh, 70% in government bonds, and that includes both um, hard currency bonds, so bonds issued in euros or in dollars, as well as uh, some local currency dominated emerging market bonds. Uh, the corporate split is about 25% at the moment, and the residual will be uh, you know, some cash, which we always have in a fund for liquidity purposes. Um, but within this uh, key um, components, I would highlight that uh, we have quite a bit of diversification uh, in terms of countries, in terms of credit quality, in terms of even some things like uh, some of the countries or corporates we invest, maybe commodity producers, so they're benefiting from this high commodity or oil prices. So uh, even though the you know the the split might appear to be monolithic and uh, you know maybe uh, perhaps something that may not have changed uh, over the last year uh, within those buckets we're actually changing things on an ongoing basis if we see better opportunities or if you see you know uh, outperformers and uh, you know we would continue rotating as we see fit with government bonds how do you assess the risk profile of a country and in addition to that, are there any emerging market countries that you completely rule out? So we first start by analyzing um, two key 
issues in the government bonds. One is the ability of a country to pay, and the other is the willingness of a country to pay. And sometimes they may not be um, exactly the same. So sometimes the country has uh, the ability to pay, but uh, perhaps the willingness is not very strong, and uh, that ends up uh, in a debt restructuring. Uh, and sometimes it's the opposite. The country has all the good intentions to continue paying, but perhaps um, you know they're going through an economic uh, crisis or a recession, uh, or maybe they're a commodity producer and commodity prices have collapsed, for example, so the ability gets hindered and then they cannot pay. So we look at those two factors very, very closely. Um, the ability to pay is normally associated with the economic health of the country in terms of growth, in terms of the ability of the country to collect taxes, uh, in terms of also having a stable corporate and financial sector, the banks, and so on, and also having a stable political environment that is conducive to investment and um, you know, gives predictability to both the locals, but also the foreign investors like ourselves. Um, we would rule out, um, you know, countries um, depending on a few um, items. Uh, one of them is, of course, if the country is under economic or financial sanctions, uh, we are not allowing to invest. So one example is Venezuela, which has been under U.S. sanctions for various years. Um, you know, that uh, is a country that we cannot invest in, even, even if we wanted to. Um, uh, other, uh, you know, countries that would, would not invest would be countries that, may be very difficult to analyze, either because there is very little or no uh, economic data. It's hard to cover the, the credit. Um, also, you know, if we think that um, a country could potentially have a major economic or a political crisis ahead, and that's not priced in by the markets, you know, the bonds, if we think the bonds are way too expensive, given the outlook of that particular country, then uh, that's also something we would not uh, be invested in. And with the uh, corporate bonds that you invest in, are there any other key considerations that you decide uh, that lead you to decide whether or not to invest in addition to the risk profile of that country? Yeah, so the as you mentioned, the, the country factor and the risk profile will be the first item that we would look at. So assuming we are comfortable with the country, uh, we would proceed to look at the corporate on its own merits. So some of the things we would look at would be the sector that the company is, for example, um, whether the company is a exporter or importer, for example, do they have any currency mismatches, uh, for example, local currency revenues and um, a lot of external dollar debt. Um, so those will be some of the things that uh, we need to stress test. Of course, we look at the company as well um, very closely in terms of financials uh, and management is very important. So we try to meet with the management team and um, you know be comfortable with what the, they're telling us is you know sounds plausible and um, and finally I would also highlight uh, ESG considerations so some examples could be there are potential risks on uh, let's say from an environmental perspective if we're talking about uh, let's say a, a miner that only has one mine and that could be subject to you know uh, an environmental risk or you know some damage and fines and so on so that's something that we absolutely need to take into consideration uh, similarly if there is any governance issues in terms of, you know, maybe opaque financials or anything that, um, you know, just doesn't feel right from a governance and uh, transparency perspective. Uh, that's also something that we absolutely need to, you know, to, to be comfortable with. And finally, a question that we ask all four managers that appear on the podcast. Do you personally invest in the M&G Emerging Markets Bond Fund? Uh, yes, I've been invested in the fund for many years. I think this 
you know, not only attests to, you know, I guess my belief on the asset class, uh, but also aligns my role and responsibilities as a fund manager with the investors in the fund. Claudia, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Great. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening. And if you are a fan of Funds Fan, then do give us a thumbs up. We'll be back in early March. But in the meantime, do check out ii.co.uk for our editorial analysis of funds, investment trusts, and ETFs. Mm -hmm.